Oh, Father, we are so thankful. Thankful for the great fragrance, even the aroma of a woman who was so devoted to Jesus that we still are talking about it 2,000 years ago, in the few, 2,000 years later. Would you help us in our own hearts to see Jesus as the most valuable treasure, that thing which we need most? Help us to be a people of extravagant devotion, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, if you're like me, you like a good dinner party. Who doesn't? But I doubt that many of us have ever been to a dinner party quite like this. Queen Cleopatra and her lover, Mark Antony, got into a little bit of a bet. It was who could throw the most lavish, over-the-top dinner party. Cleopatra went first. She had all the fine foods you can imagine, all the ornamentation, everything. But she had one ace up her sleeve. She had a servant bring a goblet of a vinegar solution, and she plucked a pearl from one of her ears and dropped it into the solution. It dissolved, and then she had a shot of pearl. She drank it. Now, that pearl was estimated to cost something like $30 million. Mark Anthony conceded on the spot. He admitted she was the hostess with the mostess. Now, whether you've been to an extravagant, over-the-top party like that or not, we know there are certain festive occasions, times where it's right even to uncork the best champagne for a great party of some sort. Well, in front of us this morning, we have a dinner party, even an extravagant dinner party. But it's not just a party for celebration's sake. It's a party of preparation. We've reached a point in John's Gospel where the first 11 chapters, we've been following Jesus around as he's been doing these big miracles and teaching people about the message behind those miracles, about who he is. But now in chapter 12 and onward, we come to the last six days of Jesus' life. The long shadow of the cross is on the horizon. Six days before the very Son of God will give his life. Six days before the very author of life will give up his own six days before the light of the world will be shrouded in darkness. And from here forward, everything Jesus does is to prepare himself and his disciples for that great moment where the Son of Man will be lifted up. So this morning we come to a dinner party, a dinner party to help his disciples and us realize that Jesus is worthy of our most extravagant devotion. We'll see that in two sections. We'll see in verses one through three, a portrait of the fragrance of extravagant devotion, looking at Mary, the fragrance of extravagant devotion in one through three. And then in four through 11, we'll see the stench of stingy devotion, the stench of stingy devotion in Judas. And all this, we'll see that Jesus is worthy of our most extravagant devotion. Let's begin in verses 1 through 3. The fragrance of extravagant devotion. Verse 1 tells us it's six days before the Passover. That means it is the end of a Sabbath. And there, that very often there would be a dinner celebration at the end of the Sabbath. And that's exactly the occasion for Jesus being invited over by a family that loves him. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, uh, was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. 
So they gave a dinner for him there. Now, if you're ever in any doubt, if someone raises a sibling of yours from the dead, proper etiquette is to throw them a dinner party, okay? So <laughs> that's what's going on here. Jesus, there's a, a dinner party, a thank you in his honor. It's in Bethany, so he's near Jerusalem again. And just think about the guest list at this dinner party. And we know from Matthew's gospel, it was hosted in the house of Simon the leper. Now, lepers don't have many dinner guests unless something miraculous has happened. So Simon is likely someone that was healed by Jesus. So maybe he's telling everyone about, oh, the, the way that Jesus regrew my nose. I got to tell you about this miracle he did. Then you have all of his disciples. They've been walking with Jesus. They've seen him do the, many miracles along the way. No, no, no. About, what about the time he walked on water? And then sitting back, you have Lazarus. Lazarus with the ace up his sleeve. Oh, you think that's good? Let me tell you about how he plucked me out of the jaws of death and brought me back to life. This is a one-of-a-kind party. They're celebrating in true Middle Eastern fashion. That would be, there would be a, a table on the floor. They would be leaning in on their elbows with their legs kind of sticking behind them. And then Mary and Martha are exactly where you expect them to be. Martha is busy serving. She's the hostess of this evening. And Mary is as close to Jesus as she could possibly get. And that brings us to the first surprise of this scene. Verse 3, Mary does something extravagant. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary does something that shows extravagant devotion to Jesus. It's got three aspects of it that are all costly. It shows she values Jesus more than anything else. The first thing is that she breaks open probably a, an alabaster jar of some sort, probably had about a soda can worth of very expensive ointment in it. It's called nard. It was uh, not easy to get your hands on. They would uh, extract it from a spiky plant that only grows in the mountains of northern India. This was literally imported from the Himalayas to Judea. It was extremely expensive. The amount that she has, based on Judas's comment later, would cost something like $40,000 today. In just a few moments, she pours out $40,000 on Jesus. This is a huge expenditure. It's costly materially. In a moment, her bank account suffers tremendously. And yet, as we're going to see, she's never been richer. There's a second way that this was costly. She pours it out and starts anointing him, but she does a second surprising thing. She anoints his feet. Normally, people would anoint the head of someone. That was the usual pattern. But the feet, uh, feet even today, are not exactly a sight to behold. Very few of us enjoy dealing with other people's feet. We wear closed-toed shoes. We have socks. And even then, feet are pretty nasty. But imagine when people wore open-toed sandals. Imagine there's no paved roads. 
There's dirt roads, which means you get mud caked on them. There's lots more livestock they're being raised, which means all that filth gets mixed and caked onto people's feet. There was a social cost to doing what Mary did. Only the lowest of servants were fit to touch someone's feet. She's a rich woman, a dignified woman of means, and here she is getting down and wiping the very feet of Jesus. She is expending her social standing in devotion to Jesus. There's a third way that this is costly. It's costly to her personally. Uh, Maybe the Nard itself was a family heirloom. Uh, Maybe it was something that she generally owned, but it wasn't personal to her. But what she does next is she wipes away this perfume with her hair. It can't be understated to a first century Middle Eastern woman. Your hair was your most valuable piece of you. You would never, not even let down your hair in front of anyone but your husband. So if you were a single woman, you might never let down your hair in public. Your hair was to be kept pure. It was a prized possession of yours, as intimate as it gets. She doesn't reach for an old rag or, or even a towel. She uses her precious hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. This is an extravagant display, no matter how you cut it. This is a woman who values Jesus more so than anything in her life, and she is willingly expending herself to show how much she loves Jesus. Now, that may seem beautiful and wonderful, it should, but that leaves a question, is it right? Is it right? Is it right to expend so lavishly, even for a moment like that with Jesus? And that brings us to a second portrait. By contrast, if we saw the fragrance of extravagant devotion, our second portrait shows us the stench of stingy devotion. The stench of stingy devotion in the life of Judas. Verse 4 tells us about Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, John can't even help himself from dropping in a little foreshadowing what Judas will do. He said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That that would be 300 days of wages, roughly $40,000 in our setting. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, most families, very broadly, can be said to have one spouse maybe that's prone towards being a spender and one that's prone to being a saver. Uh, Sometimes this actually results in conflict within a family. Again, broad brush, but very often this is the case. Some of us think more about how we can optimize and use efficiently, even store up, and others are thinking more about what we can buy and how this wonderful opportunity is in front of us. Now, from a a certain angle, Judas's objection seems sensible. Judas says, wait a second, is it really right to just pour out $40,000 worth of perfume for a few seconds of smell? Is that really the best use of this ointment? We could sell it. Think of all the hungry people we could feed. 
Think of all the clothes we could buy for people that don't have any. Surely this is not an appropriate display of devotion to Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that this actually, though, it's not a, a righteous concern of Judas. This is not someone trying to stretch the Lord's money as far as it could go. This is, as D.A. Carson put it, it's greed masquerading as altruism. It's just Judas looking for an opportunity to line his own pockets to steal out of the money box that he has control over. The great tragedy of Judas's life is going to be that he desires to get rich more than he desires to be devoted to Jesus. And one day the price for that exchange will be 30 pieces of silver and bankrupting his own soul. You know, that desire to be rich is still a temptation in the human heart 2,000 years later. As Pastor John Piper puts it, it's a suicidal desire to be rich. And it very often rears its ugly heads, even as people claim to be doing things in the name of charity. There was a man just a couple years ago named Jim Reynolds. He had a charity uh, trying to fight against cancer, raising money for cancer research. Raised $187 million. Of that, only 3% made it to an actual cancer research use. As he was being prosecuted, an attorney general said this. He said, it's appalling. This would offend even organized criminals and mobsters. Now, the history of Western civilization, certainly of our own country, there are multiple examples of people that in the name of doing something to help people actually are just enriching themselves. Now, Judas is a portrait that shows us the ugliness of the human heart when it values something more than Jesus, even to the point where it will sacrifice what's best, Jesus himself, for a little earthly gain. This is accounting by earthly standards. It's about what you can get in this life. Who cares about what rules you must break? Now, if you haven't already gotten a whiff of where John is going with this, Jesus explains to us which of these two examples is what his disciples are to have. We are to look to the example of Mary and see that extravagant devotion is the right way to respond to Jesus. Jesus goes out of his way in verses 7 and 8. John shows us that Jesus says Mary was right. He says, Jesus said, uh, leave her alone. That's Judas, get off her back. Judas, Mary is right. And then Jesus gives two reasons why Mary is right. The first reason is that her gift is more appropriate than she knows. He says, uh, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's a hard phrase to translate Depending on which English translation you look at, it'll be rendered differently. It could mean, it sounds like the ESV way it renders it, that uh, there's some of the ointment left and that Mary is going to hold on to the rest of it until after Jesus is dead and then she will anoint him or like kind of like burial spices uh, to keep the odor off of his body. I think it's a better way to understand it is to, in fact, that Mary all this time had been saving this expensive perfume for a moment that even she does not fully understand. He said, get off her back, Judas. 
She's been saving this all these years for this very moment. What, what is it about this moment? Well, it's for Jesus' burial. You see, I think at this moment, Mary is acting far better than she knew. If you were with us last week, we saw an example of a power-hungry politician, the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas was, uh, he was uh, going about some bare-knuckle politicking. He, he was willing to kill Jesus if it meant keeping his power. But even as he was working this evil end, God spoke a prophecy through him that Jesus would die for the nation. He spoke better than he knew. I think John is actually contrasting Caiaphas with Mary. Mary also is acting in a way far more profound than she knows, only the difference is hers is a pure heart of devotion. This woman is closer to seeing what God is doing than the high priest of Israel that year. She's beautifully preparing the body of Jesus for six days from now when this Jesus she loves will depart from the living. There's a second reason why Jesus tells us that Mary is right. Is that it's that her gift is more timely than she knows. Uh, verse 8 says, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now that verse has been misused by many Christians as an excuse to ignore the poor. They'll say, well, the poor will always be with us according to Jesus. So why are we spending our money trying to help people out of poverty or work toward some sort of uh, help towards societal ills? I mean, the poor will always be with us. So we should just throw up our hands and focus on the spiritual sort of work. Now, if you've been paying attention to Jesus' ministry, you know that does not fit with the, the rest of his ministry. He very often has concern for the poor. We, we find the early Christians were marked with their care for the poor, particularly inside the household of God. More than that, though, if you just know your Old Testament, you would know where Jesus is alluding to here, and it makes clear that's not what he's saying. If, if you have your Bible, flip with me to Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15, 11. It'll be up on the screen. It's pretty obvious. This is what Jesus has in mind as he says this. This is a section in the law where guidelines are given, even commands are given for how it is the poor in the nation of Israel are to be treated. Deuteronomy 15, 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. That sounds pretty familiar. So throw up our hands and do nothing, right? No, therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The poor will always be with you. So open your hands, be generous, help them. So Jesus is clearly not here saying we should be unconcerned with the poor. So what is he saying? Well, what he's saying is that there's a perpetual expected obligation for his disciples to be caring for the poor. And yet at this moment, there is an extraordinary opportunity for devotion to Jesus. There's a limited time window. Just six days from now, Jesus will no longer be in the land of the living the way that he is now. At this moment, it's possible 
to show devotion to Jesus in a way it won't be possible to just six days later. He's saying that Mary, maybe even unconsciously, has realized that there is a window for showing this level of extravagance to Jesus. And it's appropriate. This moment will never return. Now, friends, let me just say both of those reasons Jesus gives only make sense in light of the cross. They only make sense if six days later he is lifted up by Roman soldiers. They only make sense if Jesus himself, by dying on the cross, ends up accomplishing something for his people. So think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. You see, this sort of extravagant, costly devotion toward Jesus only makes sense if Jesus is, in fact, the true treasure that has outgiven us now and forever already. You see, Mary, she stood on the other side of the cross. She had some hint that this was a, an important moment, but we stand on the other side. We look back with clarity to what was coming and what actually happened. And we of all people should know that Jesus is worthy of any devotion we can pour out for him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you maybe have heard someone teach that Christians should expect that as they show devotion to God, as they maybe give money into an offering plate or they pray prayers a certain way, that that means we expect God to make us materially rich. Now, if you've heard that, let me just say that is not what the Bible teaches and that is not what we as a church believe. Material wealth is way too low of a goal for followers of Jesus. True treasure doesn't come from zeros at the end of a bank account or a big house. The true treasure is Jesus himself and what he bought for us on the cross by dying for our sins. If you don't understand some of that, let me just invite you to find a Christian friend and ask them, what, what does it mean that Jesus is my true treasure? I guarantee you they would love to answer that question for you. For us on the other end of the cross, though, we need to ask ourselves, okay, well, we're not in the same window of opportunity as Mary. We certainly don't want to waste the Lord's money. How is it that we can show extravagant devotion, living when we do 2,000 years later? Is there a reason why we should follow Mary's example and pour out our very lives for Jesus? Let me give you three reasons why we should. Three things that Christians today should find as a motivation for why they should show extravagant devotion to Jesus. The first is when you do this, it mystifies the watching world. It mystifies the watching world. You know, when people see Christians leave high-paying jobs, leave behind family to go across the ocean to live in some other country in another culture, also they can tell people about Jesus, According to the world's accounting, it doesn't add up. They ask the question, why would you do that? What is it about Jesus that makes this a good thing for you to do? And it gives us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, our true treasure. 
Every time that you show up at church on a Sunday, instead of using that day to sleep in or to go do something else out in the community, people are wondering why it is that Jesus is worth your time like this. Students, maybe it's you avoiding watching certain movies. There's something that you just know as a Christian you shouldn't be doing, and even though it means you miss out, you find Jesus to be worth it. So you willingly sacrifice this thing, and people wonder, well, what is it about Jesus that would make them do this? First reason is it it mystifies the watching world. Second, it mortifies our sin. It mortifies our sin. You, You know, the tragedy of Judas is that he ends up being carried away by this love of money, so much so that he literally sells his devotion to Jesus. Within each of us is a heart. Maybe it's not the love of money, but something else within us that we value too much. That if we were to leave it unchecked, might carry us away from Jesus, even to betray Jesus, seeking after this thing we think is going to bring us happiness and joy and all the rest. When you, in fact, take that thing and you lay it down in front of Jesus, You're drawing a line in your own heart. You're clarifying where you stand with Jesus. What really value you value most. Third reason is it multiplies our joy. It multiplies our joy. See, there's there's nothing in this world as enjoyable as your relationship with Jesus. At, At your clearest moments, at the moments where you're thinking with least hindrance of the flesh and sin, you know that anything you sacrifice for Jesus results in you receiving far more joy and peace and all the rest that comes with your walk with him than you ever gave away. Now, it's the fact that we lose sight of this that makes us make these terrible trades according to the heavenly way of accounting. We trade away more of Jesus and more joy with him for momentary pleasures that really won't give us lasting satisfaction. So how is it that we can actually put this into practice? Let me attempt to give you some practical ways that I hope you're convinced you want to be extravagantly devoted to Jesus. But what does that actually look like in your life? Well, one way it comes out is how a church sets a budget. Oh, I know, there's nothing quite so exciting as a congregational meeting about a budget. Um, If you're an accountant, forgive me, but most of us, our hearts are not set aflutter by uh, designated accounts and percentages and things. And yet realize, as a church, every time we set a budget, we are actually saying what we value most. We are saying that we're a group of people in a location that we have gathered together to do ministry. We're going to gather as many resources together as we can. And and now we are going to spend these resources in a way that shows that Jesus is our greatest treasure. So whether we send that money around the world to an unreached country, or if we use that money to do an outreach here in Indianapolis, or if we spend it on our facility, the, the hope would be that we as a people are doing this because we value Jesus. Now, this is one of the reasons I am really glad that even as we were planted as a church, uh, less than two years here in our building, from day one, 
We as a congregation have been giving money towards all those things. We, we give money to plant other churches in Indianapolis, like this one. We give money to support missionaries globally. I, I hope that our heart is to do more and more in that as the Lord allows us to. You know, there always will be more technology we could stuff into a building. There will always be a bigger roof to put on a building. But if we really value Jesus most, it will come out in the way even we set a church budget. Now, let me just pause here because of the particular place we are as a church. As your pastor, I just need to tell you, I'm extremely encouraged in the way that the members of our church are supporting the ministry here. Um, I, I'm glad for the, the way you are showing extravagant devotion to Jesus this way. Not just because it makes my job easier, although it does, but because of what it says about your heart. It shows that we as a people... We value the ministry so much that we will even put our money where our mouth is and where our heart is. And that's deeply encouraging to your pastor to know that. I pray that we only grow in that same devotion to Jesus in the years ahead. Now, this doesn't just come out with your checkbook, though. It also comes out socially. You know, we already talked about how uh, Mary did something very countercultural socially in stooping down to anoint Jesus' feet. I love the image of the fragrance filling the whole house. You know, it was un, completely impossible to miss what it is that had just occurred because the smell went everywhere. You know, I would hope that as Christians, that that's our desire, that we would be so devoted to Jesus that people can't help but hear about him if they are around us. Uh, one practical way you can do that, we, you all have one of these cards because we put it in our bulletin, so no one's exempt from this. Um, we got a community cookout coming up. Um, the whole goal of that is to, for us to provide a non-threatening opportunity for people to get to know our church, for you to get to know our non-Christians in our community with the hope that you might be able to share the good news of Jesus with them one day and we might have some new brothers and sisters in Christ as a result. Now, I know that could be awkward. Maybe you haven't talked with your neighbor since the tree fell down on your property. Or uh, There's all sorts of reasons why we don't have conversations with people around us. But if you really value Jesus, if he's your true treasure, couldn't you stick your neck out and make it a little awkward to invite them to this? That's one way you can do it. Kids, let me just say one way that very often you can tell what you value most. What happens when you have some free time, when you're not doing all your chores and your homework and all the other things you're required to do, you have some free time to choose what you want to do. What do you do in that moment? Is it playing video games? Is it collecting bugs outside? I don't know. There's lots of different things kids do. But let me ask you to consider, would you spend even a small amount of your time trying to get to know Jesus. Maybe it's just five minutes reading your Bible. Maybe it's listening to the Bible on an on a iPad or something. But would you just carve out five minutes that you have the freedom to spend elsewhere and instead devote them to Jesus and see what might happen in your heart? Now, one of the places where the rubber meets the road on how you value Jesus undoubtedly comes to your comfort and your safety. Uh, we already talked about Sunday morning. It is easier just to sleep in, let's be frank. It's easier not to spend the time and money to drive to church midweek for various events and classes. But if we value Jesus, then we want to be with other people to worship him each Sunday. 
We want to grow in our grace, that, uh, grow in the graces that we find his word teaching us. We need to be together for that. But it's even more stark when it comes to our safety. You know, around the world, so often Christians have to choose between valuing their safety, even their lives, or whether they're valuing Jesus. Very often the point of no return for those Christians is baptism. Baptism is going public with your faith. And in some places, that means your life will be at risk. There's a recent Christianity Today article by a missionary who goes by the pseudonym Nick Ripkin about a group of believers in Somalia. A group of men came to Christ through a particular pastor's ministry. They were reached the point where they were going to be baptized. And then the pastor got picked up by some militants. Word reached them that their pastor had been killed. They were faced with a choice. Do they take the step of identifying with Jesus? Do they value him worth more than their own lives? Is he worth it? Or do they walk away? He writes of the encounter and said, the, the man who you loved enough to tell you about Jesus, giving you the opportunity of eternal life, has been killed because of his faith. That's, this is the cost of following Jesus. Now that you know the cost, are you ready to follow Jesus through baptism and beyond? He ends the article with this line, not one person walked away. Few of us have that question of our safety in our devotion to Jesus. And yet our hearts must draw the same line. Is Jesus worth costly, extravagant devotion. And if so, what are we willing to pour out at his feet for our joy? Let's pray.